everyone. You're listening to Green and Gold, the cannabis podcast where we talk about anything and everything that has to do with cannabis. In this week's episode, we're going to look at a huge and very important sector of the industry, which is the role of military veterans um, as cannabis entrepreneurs, employees, and advocates. When I first learned about how many Army, Navy, Marine, and even Special Forces veterans had become really outspoken champions for weed, and a lot of them started their own weed companies, I was really surprised. And superficially speaking to me, the two sectors didn't seem to overlap much or have much in common. But I was 100% wrong, uh, as is often the case. And what I've learned over the last year or two in talking to veterans throughout the country is that cannabis is a hugely personal issue. There's a lot of um, very intimate reasons they've become active in the industry. There are a lot of service members that return from war with chronic pain, anxiety, migraines, and a ton of other conditions that are typically then treated with heavy-duty opioids. And the side effects from these uh, prescription painkillers can be debilitating. A lot of them report constipation or decreased sex drive, and they end up leaving people with a worse quality of life than they began with. And some end up addicted to these drugs and often overdosing on them. So an increasing number of veterans, especially younger veterans, um, are turning to cannabis as an alternative to these drugs. Many have reported it helping with nearly all their symptoms of multiple ailments to a point where they could either reduce or completely eliminate their use of other prescription drugs. Um, And there's also been promising anecdotal reports on cannabis's effectiveness in treating post-traumatic stress disorder. So here's the thing, though. The Department of Veterans Affairs through which veterans receive uh, medical care, is under federal jurisdiction. And therefore, doctors are barred from prescribing marijuana to their patients and often recommending its use. So this applies even in states like California, where recreational marijuana is legal. There's been numerous attempts at a legislative level to change this policy, and in fact, just last month, a bill was introduced that would legalize medical weed for military veterans and allow their doctors to help facilitate patient access to it, but nothing so far has been approved into law. So, all right, that's enough from me. Who better to explain the role of veterans in the weed industry than a veteran in the weed industry himself? I first met Stephen Passmore last year when he was taking part in a veteran's internship with the L.A.-based cannabis company THC Design. Since then, Passmore struck out on his own and together with a group of other military veterans started the Legion Noir, a group which basically plans to buy up large-scale farms in California and hire other military veterans to work on them. So here's Stephen. So my time in the military service post 9-11, my stepfather from Jamaica, Queens, New York, took us there for that December. And it was a experience standing there at Ground Zero uh, filled with patriotism, or at least what I believed to be patriotism at the time. Signed up for the military. I didn't. I wasn't even sure that I was going to go to Iraq. I wasn't even sure I was going to get deployed. For some reason, I had this idea that 
I'm not going to go because I was in combat arms. But lo and behold, I found myself at Fort Hood at 4th ID, the unit that did catch Saddam. And I deployed in 2006. And it was what what war is. <laughs> it's, it's changed in a lot of ways, but it's very much the same. How long were you there for? I was there for a whole year. I was there for the entire year of 2006. And what was your experience like um, coming back? You know, your first few days coming back and what was that transition like? They often ask the question, what was it like when you got back? Were friends or family there? And I remember seeing people's friends and family there, seeing them off and when they came back. And for both of, for both of my departure and my return, there wasn't anybody there. And that's not an indictment on anybody in my life. I know that a lot of people had to work and had other things going on, but... I do think now being able to look back and to be honest with myself that those things didn't matter to me. Coming back home from surviving war and nobody's there. And so you just dive into when you see everybody else that is just as lonely as you diving into and typically that's going to be alcohol. And so you start abusing alcohol, you're going out too much, you have a lot of money, so there's no limit, there's no restriction. And you're emboldened, you just survived war, you're a hero you're a god as far as you're concerned you're young and dumb and so what for you was that jolt that made you um seek help or i guess change behavior a little bit my father one of the pivotal points was my father gave me a business card from somebody who was a counselor at a vet center and that was my first real experience with anything that was even related to a veteran benefit and I went and spoke to that counselor and then I got a, a understanding of the things that were going on with me simply by sitting in the waiting room. I read the pamphlet that talked about post-traumatic stress disorder and I thought that you had to shoot like a lot of people in the face. I thought like you had to have experienced something so extreme that you were G.I. Joe and thus you had these terrors. There's a lot of days that are over there that are just very PG and there's not a lot of not, not a lot going on. But to really think about how fragile life is, is what I learned when I was in combat. And I know now that based upon my life before the military, during and after, once I looked at that list that said, these are the red flags, these are the things to look for, for somebody who has PTSD, I started crying right there because I knew that that was me. I knew that I had these issues. And so I started getting counseling. I went to the VA. I found a uh, U.S. Marine Corps gunnery sergeant, retired, who held groups at the VA, uh, AA meetings and other things. And he went there three days a week. And if it was not for him giving me a ride from the Antelope Valley, which was 40 miles away that I just had no way to get to. I, I, I don't know where I'd be. And so after I'd finished my appointment, I'd go sit in these groups instead of just sit alone. And the things that I was able to learn in these rooms, I didn't think that I had a problem with addiction. I didn't think that I was addicted to alcohol. I knew, certainly knew I abused it, but I, I didn't think I was addicted by any means. But when I came to learn in just uh, reflection uh, and being honest with myself is that I was addicted to power and I was addicted to control. And these things were just as detrimental to my livelihood and my well-being as being addicted to any drug or substance. And so, um, and being in those rooms, it just gave me a, a real opportunity to know what I think is the only thing worth knowing in this world and that's yourself. What you're talking about, especially with alcohol, is a, obviously a very common thing that comes up with veterans and a lot of people I spoke with who did end up kind of switching or moving towards cannabis um, left alcohol and 
found huge improvements. I'm curious for you, when was the first time you even considered cannabis um, as a option for, I guess, treatment or recreation? Or how did that kind of come into your life? So with the introduction to the VA, I was introduced to a psychiatrist. I had a a team put in place for things that were physical, mental, spiritual, a number of options in front of me. Um, And as I started working through some of the issues with my psychiatrist, I was often being prescribed things. And my mother being a nurse and my father being an EMT paramedic, fireman paramedic, they both looked at what I was being prescribed and recommended I didn't take it. And so... Was it mostly like painkillers or what kind of things uh, were they... I got prescribed painkillers. I was being prescribed an antipsychotic. I was being prescribed trazodone for sleep. And so it was these, these things that I really didn't have any experience with. And so my mom, she said to me that I should find something else to deal with the th- same things that I was experiencing. So as I looked at uh, having problems with sleep and as I looked at pain, and as I just went down the Google Avenue, it led to cannabis, which I was shocked because I was a young man out of high school who said, I'm going to go into the army and then I'm going to go into the DEA. And <laughs> that's how I was like, I'm going over there and I'm going to fight terrorists and those people supporting, you know, the drug war. And I just was completely hook, line and sinker into the, the theme of America at the time. And so I was astounded to see that there were people that were veterans that were talking about being able to sleep. And to me, that there, there was nothing more valuable at the time. And I still, to this day, focus very heavily on sleep hygiene. I didn't know for a long time that I was having night terrors. I was crying. I was laughing. I was all kinds of things in my sleep. And I, more times than not, was inebriated. I was under the influence of alcohol, so I'm not really registering any of it because I'm not conscious. And at the same time, I'm not in a deep sleep. And uh, friends or people who were around me started telling me, you're doing these things in your sleep. And so um, I tried cannabis for the first time and I thought I might die. And it wasn't all that bad. I lived and I giggled and I, the shell kind of cracked a little bit. You thought you might die because it was so strong or because you had never tried it before so you just didn't know Because I thought expect. that's what happened. I thought if you smoked it, you'd die immediately. <laughs> <laughs> like, did you do certainty. it like with a friend or at home by yourself? Or I did it with friends. Uh, they were all really shocked that I was going to try it. I learned very quickly that I wanted to get my medical marijuana card because I wanted to understand what I was consuming. From the first time that I had cannabis, there was no real name. Mm-hmm. I didn't know uh, what a sativa or indica or hybrid or any of this was. And they were like, yeah, it's fire. You're going to get high. <laughs> and I laughed uncontrollably for about five hours. And my face hurt so bad my cheeks were cramping and at one point in time I threw a Powerade bottle uh, up in the sky and it turned into a choo-choo train and so (laughs) um, it was both very enjoyable and uh, traumatic (laughs) but I didn't die and that night I had the best sleep that uh, I could remember and so it was life-changing. And so from there how do you translate that like a fun experience with friends into something that has become um, not only the focus of your professional life, but also personal life and such a big part of your kind of everyday wellness, it seems. Once I got involved with cannabis and I saw that it wasn't what I thought, I started to dig into what it was and started to try and get a real understanding of what cannabis was, not only as a plant, but what it meant to me as a person. Um, 
understanding its history in the same way I'd want to understand my history. I did an ancestry DNA and I know what I am as far as um, race or ethnicity, but I don't know how I became that way. And the same mystery I feel was very personal to me with cannabis. And so I got a book named uh, Smoke Signals by Martin A. Lee. I bought it at Hempfest in Seattle and he was there. He signed it and I read it and it was just talked full of so much information from the time that Europeans um, colonized America and what it meant to America uh, in those early times of, uh, of agriculture, of the Constitution, the first two drafts being written on hemp. And then also what was said um, by all of the founding fathers that really the only thing that's worth a damn in this country is to own land. And that's the only thing that really matters. If you don't own land, you don't own nothing. And so to see how the cannabis industry is playing out now um, is just a a repeat of all the things that have happened in the past in America before. With every industry, you have somebody who has a stake and has equity in an industry, and they use their political power to uh, make sure that certain people can't get involved. And history is told that time and time again. So as I found myself here at this time, uh, I found that it's really important, and I've always been shocked that not, there's not a whole lot of storytelling when it comes to cannabis. Mm-hmm. Um, as you see strains that come out as bubble gum, tasty, yum yum, alien, but nobody's naming it, naming strains after the people who put in so much hard work laying the foundation, uh, the people who sacrificed their lives mm-hmm. and died and went to prison for really, really long times and lost everything. Uh, people that were crucified by the government. Uh, these stories aren't really being told. And I think that the reason these stories aren't being told is the same reason these stories aren't told in any other industry, which is the underlying um, foundation of all America, which it comes down to race, because why it was made illegal in the first place has so much to do with race. And so as I come to learn all of these things, I can't help but take it personal to be in this very charged time where race is at the forefront of every conversation. Mm -hmm. And so at this point, um, like on your day-to-day, do you use cannabis every day? Do you use it specifically to address um, certain things or for recreation? Like how does it play into your kind of everyday consumption? I use high-dose CBD, uh, low-dose THC. I usually use an indica at nighttime to help me get to sleep. Sometimes I'll use a sativa somewhere in the day. Um, But... Uh, definitely since my involvement in the industry, I think being surrounded by so much cannabis changes your feelings on it. Maybe it's like working at a chocolate store. Everyone <laughs> thinks that just every day. And that's that's how I feel about uh-huh. at a chocolate store. I eat it all. But um, surrounded by it so frequently and having so many conversations about it, perhaps I'm jaded. You know. So you think your consumption's gone down? Certainly. <laughs> yeah. And do you smoke or eat it or how do you? I prefer smoking. I think that for me, uh, it's not only physical, it's mental and it's spiritual. And for it to go through glass, uh, liquid, sand and water and air and for it to be earth coming uh, from an herb, I think is just a very full, well-rounded experience. Do you think without it, you would have continued down the path of alcohol or prescription drugs or, you know, I I guess besides it being a recreational thing, have you seen it as something that's um, deterred or replaced other substances you either were using or may have ended up using? Uh, yes, absolutely. When I first got back from Iraq, my sleep issues, I 
I went and got sleep MD and I got addicted to those. Mm-hmm. I, if I didn't take them, I couldn't sleep. Are those the things you get at like the liquor store? Yeah. Or you, are they yeah, the prescription? Yes. And, um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so my sleep habits got really weird and really funky and sleepwalking and, uh, it was affecting, uh, my general wellness. I, I was uh, like a light switch, like either completely on or completely off. And it got to the point where I wasn't sure if I was, a dream if I was sleeping or if I was awake and this is time where I was active duty um and I told uh the medical team that I had at the time about my sleep issues and they took me off of that and they prescribed something that I know I didn't take after that point and then I just decided that it'd be better to deal with not being able to sleep and uh, definitely with alcohol I, I don't think that alcohol was initially a conscious decision as far as this is going to help me sleep. But I know foolishly, I believed that I was getting good sleep with alcohol because you drink that much. Of course you pass out with mm-hmm. Jack Box taco in your hand <laughs> and you feel like, Oh yeah, it's upgrade. Like, no, you didn't. <laughs> and, um, definitely by the time that I it came around to cannabis and once I had an understanding, I think that's what really what it came down to, because I still hear people say that they don't like cannabis based upon the effect that it had in a previous experience. And I had that same experience as far as I wanted to go to sleep and I smoked a sativa and had no idea. And I, then I was just cleaning the bathroom for the next two hours <laughs> or it was in the morning and I wanted to get up and write and I smoked and all I wanted to do was go back to bed. And so I think that with that basic information and uh, basic information and kind of catering towards what time of day and what specific needs someone needs, I think it easily replaces a whole bunch of things. Obviously, a big part of this whole discussion um, of veterans' involvement in the industry, but also as advocates, is due in part because the VA still isn't allowed, doctors aren't allowed to prescribe cannabis to patients, even in states where it's legal. How did it make you feel not to be able to talk to your actual doctor or healthcare provider about this and kind of have to come to it your own way? By that time, I felt that I understood what was going on with the U.S. government, that they Mm -hmm. just systematically lied for so long. And then there were still some people holding out. So when it came to the VA and cannabis, um, even older veterans, when it comes to uh, wars uh, pre-9-11, they have, in what I've experienced, a different feeling for cannabis. Um, They came home with different kind of addictions from from that war. Uh, I think that because they went through the drug war also between that time and this time, whereas I was born at that time. So I've only seen the 90s experience and the early 2000s of cannabis. So for the older uh, veterans, they, they're still it's still very taboo. But for the younger veterans for post 9-11 vets, you often find a, like, a wide acceptance. And so the conversation is being had. So to, to not being able to talk to your doctor at one point in time about something that you feel is a solution, you just understand that that's, you know, that's bureaucracy and that's how it's going to be. There's a million and one hoops that are put in front of you when you go to the VA. And then to think that you might get in trouble as well for uh, consuming cannabis is, it wasn't just disheartening for me, but I know for a number of, of other veterans, it was just, it was a real slap in the face, especially once you start having the freedom and liberty conversation. 
Because you can, and just real quick, um, because I've heard different things about this. So you can, um, if you get caught using cannabis or like if it's in your system, you can lose your benefits, is that no. right? Or what can happen? So um, what's the fear there? Even with the, so with the VA, at one point in time, there was this idea that you couldn't even talk to your doctor about cannabis, mm-hmm. which it turned out they didn't have to repeal that rule because it was never a rule in the first place. It was just this idea like mm-hmm. i can't talk to my and it is completely understandable because in the military you don't talk to anybody about cannabis and so for all the things that have happened in the very recent years i'd say in the, in the last two years with the va in reference to cannabis um they've become far more lenient and it's not something that people are being punished for as far as i know and uh and to my understanding they repeal uh the vast majority of, of rules that penalize uh, veterans for cannabis use. So that's a step in the right direction, at least. Yeah, small, certainly. Very small, small step. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, small step on a long road, certainly. I'm curious why you think there are so many veterans, you know, um, not only advocating um, at the policy level in their own states and nationally, but also um, employed in it and starting their own businesses like yourself. I think it has to do with veterans uh, since we've been having these world wars, all the veterans that come back from these wars advocate for something. Uh, historically, they've had a lot to do with changing the country from uh, World War One and coming back, uh, going into the Deep Depression to the World War Two vets that came back and got involved with government and music and all of these different things that changed the landscape of the country uh, to uh, talk about Vietnam leading up to 9-11, post 9-11 vets with Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, coming back and facing uh, challenges uh, at home. Uh, servicemen and women come from the poor, typically the poorest communities that are going and fighting these wars. And so I feel that they are often are not emboldened to uh, engage in the political system and, and, and use their voice. But once you go to the military and then you're now conditioned to be uh, God and you believe that you've served and you've earned this right of 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 speech you've earned this right of freedom that you've earned this right of liberty I think that you become more and you know that you have these these accomplishments behind you too you know that you've done things and so you come back and you see these problems before you and had it not been for the military maybe you wouldn't have done anything maybe you would have felt that these problems are too big but I think that a lot of veterans feel that they can change things Will you tell us a little bit about the company you started? And I Googled the name, and so it has historic reference. Will you tell us a little bit about that also? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So I was reading uh, The Black Count by Tom Reese, and it's the story of Alexander Dumas. Uh, Alexander Dumas writing uh, The Count of Monte Cristo and The Three Musketeers. His father uh, was the character that was then to be modeled The Count of Monte Cristo. He was a general in the French army, and this guy was just incredible. Uh, as a child, he was actually sold into slavery in the San Domingos Islands, and then his father, before returning to France, buys one of his many kids that he sold into slavery. He buys his oldest back, takes him back to France, and raises him to be this aristocrat, to be this top society um, young man. And so this guy is like LeBron Braun, you know, he is just awesome and incredible. He's gigantor. He can fence and he can ride horses. And he speaks like all these awesome languages and romances, all the women and swoos everybody. And um, this is a time where racism is rising in the world. And uh, he signs up to go into the military. Uh, his father's really upset that he doesn't go as an officer, that he decides to go as an enlisted 
And the unit that he decides to go with at this time in France that this revolution is happening, there's all of these legions. And for some reason, even though they decide that they don't have slavery in France, they're like, we don't want to let mulattoes in our legions. So there's no option for these black French revolutionaries. And so they created their own legion and is the legion noir and so they become like this historic fighting force and uh the book goes on to really explain um all of the amazing successes that this guy had i mean he's just hitting like threes at the buzzard <laughs> and like coming back from these deficits that nobody thinks he can win these battles and he ends up winning and so in the creation of the legion noir um and seeing what's happening here in los angeles and understanding history uh in america every industry that we've had has typically led to uh, uh, the African-American, the colored community being excluded in some way, shape, or form, definitely an early formation of industries. And I don't feel like that's any exception in the cannabis industry. And so as I worked at a company where my boss is Caucasian and I saw how they viewed me and I didn't know if it was because I was black or I didn't know if it was because I was a veteran or whatever the circumstances would be, but I knew that just with all the things that were going on, there was no way of not understanding that him and I had different connections to this plant, that we have a different experience as far as our perception of this plant and what this industry could be or should be or, or whatever the conversation you want to have. And so I feel that the cannabis in industry has been very much established, that there's not, that they're, very, they're arguing over the crumbs, which is THC or CBD, where there's not much of a conversation being drawn around the larger picture, which is hemp. And um, knowing that you need certain things to grow, uh, the Legion Noir, our intentions are to do just what the people in the book did, and that is to farm together, to to. Uh, farm collectively, not farm exclusively cannabis. Cannabis is just uh, a vehicle. It's something that we farm out of necessity like anything else, uh, like tomatoes or lettuce. If I had to ask myself the honest question of what I would wish I would have done in 30 years from now, I'd say that I wish I had gotten property and I wish that I had owned the one thing that's worth owning, which is land. And I put it in a business format. If I were to do it by myself, it'd be very, very difficult to apply for grants and other fundraising. But to do it with a team that has those similar interests, which I was exposed to by being at THC Design, uh, I was able to have these conversations with other vets at, uh, at events. And we put together this team and we know exactly what we want to do. And so... Um, we're rolling it out early next year. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming and sharing all this. And thank I'm sure we'll check me. in with you uh, next year, hopefully. We can come visit the Veterans Commune, that it kind of sounds <laughs> yeah. like, that I've been yeah. to a lot. But anyways, thanks for being here, Stephen. Thanks for having me. All right. That's it for Green and Gold this week. Thanks so much for listening. And please feel free to send me questions and feedback on my Twitter account, at EPFox, or Instagram, at PennyGadget. Hit me with what you want to know more about, what topics you think we should cover, and any other suggestions you may have for the show. This has been a Table Cakes podcast. Table Cakes Productions is a woman-owned, LA-based podcast network, and you can check out our other shows at tablecakes.com. You can also support Green and Gold by visiting patreon.com backslash tablecakes. All right, until next time, buds.